We're continuing our exploration of love and obedience. Right now, it's Abraham's relationship to God and what the covenant that they had means to us today. Here's Pastor George. So let's begin to try to understand that gift of God's grace, covenant. First, covenant is neither simply a contract nor a last will and testament, as you might have heard sometimes. It's not an agreement enforced by law. Though it involves promises and responsibilities, thinking of it just as a contract needlessly trivializes its extent and ignores the reality-altering fact that one of the parties to it is God Almighty. So discard the notion of contract or will, and we will look at how it is defined and unveiled in Scripture. Second, there are several places in Scripture where covenant is declared and defined, but three key instances are the covenant between God and Abraham, the law, that is the covenant between God and Israel beginning with Moses, and the covenant Jesus declared. The relation of these three and their interplay is the topic of Paul's writings, of Jesus' declarations, and of the covenant that all of mankind is invited to partake in. We will focus on this central topic in this chapter and in the next two. The first covenant to be established was with Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 15 and 17. Paul refers to it in chapter 3 of his letter to the Galatians, although he cites only parts of it. Unfortunately, many subsequent Christian writers build theologies solely upon Paul's partial references and miss a key element of God's covenant with Abraham, one that actually is continued in the law of Moses and the teachings of Jesus. And here's what the scripture says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So God comes to Abram reminds him that he is his protector and supply, and then God initiates a covenant with a promise to give Abram innumerable descendants, an exceedingly great reward. Abram believes or trusts God when he makes this promise. This means simply that he has faith that what God promises, God can and will do. The text says God credited him for his belief as if it were righteousness. Now, this idea that Abram's trust 
was credited to him as righteousness is the source of much theology, study, debate, and assertion. Paul focuses on it in Romans as a key to understanding the role of Jesus in the divine plan of salvation. The central realization here is that Abram's response isn't belief, faith, or trust in a set of propositions or doctrines or even in the scriptures, there weren't any yet, but in the reliability, the faithfulness of God. Abram believes God will do what God says he will do. It's really that basic. God will do what God says he will do, and Abraham believes it. But God credits it to Abram as righteousness? That seems like an odd equivalence. Why righteousness? Well, to understand this odd equivalence, we have to first pause and ask, what is righteousness? In normal usage, it means following moral principles. In Scripture, it means acting in harmony with God's will. To trust God is to be and act in harmony with his will. Thus, this equivalence is not an odd one, but a perfectly natural one. If righteousness is simply a moral, social value, then trusting God is an odd thing to equate with it. But if righteousness is being in harmony with his will, then to trust him is righteousness. Let me just repeat this point because it's a really important one and I think we miss it. So often we miss this. If righteousness is being in harmony with God's will, then to trust him is righteousness. So, Abram trusts that God can and will do what he promises, and God credits this to him as righteousness. Abram is in God's will, and God acknowledges it. So far, so good. Then Genesis continues with this meaning-laden moment. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed them each piece opposite the other but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down in the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, this doesn't signify much to the modern mind, but this sacrifice and dividing was a symbol of agreement in ancient times, an agreement sealed by death and blood, a kind of profound witness, like a notary public or a granite monument, to affirm the seriousness of the covenant. The story continues with an intense encounter with God and a prophecy. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, 
Horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This was a foretelling by God of Israel's captivity in Egypt, from which Moses would bring freedom and a subsequent and additional covenant, the law, the law of Moses. We will consider that covenant shortly. But there's still much of eternal importance to understand about this one, the covenant between God and Abram. God continues to open up the future of Abram and then shows his presence with fire. The scripture continues, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, that is, the pieces that Abram had separated of the sacrifice. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kezanites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Here God completes the symbol of the covenant, the dividing of the slain animals, by passing his presence between them as a smoking oven and a burning torch, much as his presence in the smoke and fire would later guide the Israelites in the wilderness. And God promises that Abram's descendants will one day occupy the land after they leave captivity in Egypt, led by Moses. Already, the covenant with Abram is plainly set forth, its conditions made clear, its future assured, and its promises sealed by God's presence. Just in Genesis 15 alone, we have God initiates a covenant with Abram, God promises Abram innumerable descendants, Abram trusts that God will do what he promises. God credits Abram with righteousness for his trust. And in addition, God promises Abram old age. God foretells captivity followed by freedom. God promises Abram land for his descendants. God seals the covenant with cutting blood and his fiery presence. This seals the covenant with Abram. And we will look even more deeply into it when we come again together next time. Thanks, George. Well, as mentioned, we'll continue to dissect what the covenant means and what it means to us today. And we'll do that next time. We hope you can join us. In the meantime, a reminder that a study guide is available for what we believe and why. And you can find that and other resources at the website, whatwebelieveandwhy.com. We hope you'll check it out and that you find it beneficial in your growth as a believer. 
We'll see you next time for What We Believe and Why with Dr. George Byron Koch.